Chapter Fourteen, Part One of The Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, Heroism, Volume One by Frederick Wimper. Chapter Fourteen: The Reverse of the Picture, Mutiny, Part One. The Royal Navy has ever been the glory of our country, but there are spots even on the bright sun. The service has been presented hitherto almost entirely under its best aspects, example after example of heroic bravery, unmurmuring endurance, and splendid discipline have been cited nor can we err in painting it color de rose for its gallant exploits have won it undying fame but in the service at one time thank god those times are hardly possible now mutiny and desertion on a large scale were eventualities to be considered and dreaded they were at least remote possibilities in a few instances they became terrible facts in the merchant service we still hear of painful examples. Every reader will remember the case of the Lenny mutineers, who murdered the captain and mates in the Bay of Biscay, with the object of selling the ship in Greece, and were defeated by the brave steward, who steered for the coast of France, and was eventually successful in communicating with the French authorities. The example about to be related is a matter of historical fact, from which the naval service in particular may still draw most important lessons. In the year 1787, being seventeen years after Captain Cook's memorable first voyage, a number of merchants and planters resident in London memorialized His Majesty George III that the introduction of the breadfruit tree from the southern Pacific Islands would be of great benefit to the West Indies, and the king complied with their request. A small vessel, the Bounty, was prepared, the arrangements for disposing the plants being made by Sir Joseph Banks, long the distinguished president of the Royal Society, and one of the most eminent men of science by, of the day. Banks had been with Cook amongst these very islands. Indeed, it is stated that in his zeal for acquiring knowledge, he had undergone the process of tattooing himself. The ship was put under the command of Lieutenant Bly, with officers and crew numbering in all forty-four souls, to whom were added a practical botanist and assistant. The bounty sailed from Spithead on December 23, 1787, and soon encountered very severe weather, which obliged them to refit at Tenerife. Terrible gales were experienced near Cape Horn. Storms of wind with hail and sleet, which made it necessary to keep a constant fire night and day, and one of the watch always attended to dry the people's wet clothes. This stormy weather continued for nine days, the ship required pumping every hour. The decks became so leaky that the commander was obliged to allot the great cabin to those who had wet berths to hang their hammocks in. It was at last determined, 
after vainly struggling for thirty days to make headway, to bear away for the Cape of Good Hope. The helm was accordingly put aweather, to the great joy and satisfaction of all on board. They arrived at the Cape late in May, and stopped there for thirty-eight days, refitting, replenishing provisions, and refreshing the worn-out crew. On October the 26th, they anchored in Matavia Bay, Otahaiti, and the natives immediately came out to the ship in great numbers. Tinah, the chief of the district, on hearing of the arrival of the bounty, sent a small pig and young plantain tree as a token of friendship, and the ship was liberally supplied with provisions. Handsome presents were made to Tinah, and he was told that they had been sent to him on account of the kindness of the people to Captain Cook during his visit. "'Will you not, Tinah?' said Bly, "'send something to King George in return?' "'Yes,' he replied, "'I will send him anything I have,' and then enumerated the different articles in his power, among which he mentioned the breadfruit. This was exactly what Bly wished, and he was told that the breadfruit trees were what King George would greatly like, and the chief promised that a large number should be placed on board. The importance of the breadfruit to these people cannot be overstated. That old navigator Dampier had well described it a hundred years before. The breadfruit, as we call it, grows on a large tree, as big and high as our largest apple trees. It has a spreading head, full of branches and dark leaves. The fruit grows on the boughs like apples, it is as big as a penny loaf, when wheat is at five shillings a bushel. It is of a round shape, and has a thick, tough rind. When the fruit is ripe, it is yellow and soft, and the taste is sweet and pleasant. The natives of Guam use it for bread. They gather it when full-grown, while it is green and hard. Then they bake it in an oven, which scorches the rind and makes it black but they scrape off the outside black crust, and there remains a tender, thin crust, and the inside is soft, tender, and white. The fruit lasts in season eight months. During Lord Anson's two months' stay at Tinian, no ship's bread was consumed, the officers and men all preferring the breadfruit. Byron speaks of these South Sea islands, where labor is the merest playwork, the earth affording nearly spontaneously all that the natives need, as the happy shores without a law, where all partake the earth without dispute, and bread itself is gathered as a fruit, where none contests the fields, the woods, the streams, the goldless age, where gold disturbs no dreams. The Otahatans of those days were a most harmless, amiable, and unsophisticated people, one day the gudgeon of the cutter's rudder was missing, and was believed to have been stolen. I thought, says Bly, it would have a good effect to punish the boatkeeper in their presence, and accordingly I ordered him a dozen lashes. All who attended the punishment interceded very earnestly to get it mitigated. The woman showed great sympathy. The intercourse between the crew and natives was very pleasant. The Otahatans showed the most perfect ease of manner, with a candor and sincerity about them that is quite refreshing. When they offered refreshments, for instance, if they were not accepted, 
they did not press them they had not the least idea of that ceremonious kind of refusal which expects a second invitation having one day says bligh exposed myself too much in the sun i was taken ill on which all the powerful people both men and women collected round me offering their assistance on an occasion when the bounty had nearly gone ashore in a tremendous gale of wind and on another when she did go aground after all was right again these kind-hearted people came in crowds to congratulate the captain on her escape many of them shed tears while the danger seemed imminent in the evenings the whole beach was like a parade crowded with several hundred men women and children all good-humoured and affectionate to one another their sports and games were continued till near dark when they peaceably returned to their homes they were particularly cleanly bathing every morning and often twice a day it is sad to turn from this pleasant picture to find the spirit of desertion and mutiny appearing amongst the crew there can be no doubt that the allurements of the island its charming climate and abundant productions the friendliness of the natives and ease of living were the main causes bligh made one fatal mistake in his long stay of over five months during which the crew had all opportunities of leave ashore every man of them had his tayo or friend from the moment he set his foot ashore he found himself in the midst of ease and indolence all living in a state of luxury without submitting to anything approaching real labor such enticements were too much for a common sailor for must he not contrast the islander's happy lot with his own hardships on board one morning the small cutter was missing with three of the crew they had taken with them eight stands of arms and ammunition the master was dispatched with one of the chiefs in their pursuit but before they had got any great distance they met the boat with five of the natives who were bringing her back to the ship for this service they were handsomely rewarded the chiefs promised to use every possible means to detect and bring back the deserters which in a few days some of the islanders had so far accomplished as to seize and bind them but let them loose again on a promise that they would return to their ship which they did not exactly fulfil but gave themselves up soon after on a search being made for them a few days after this it was found that the cable by which the ship rode had been cut close to the water's edge so that it held by only a strand bligh considered this the act of one of his own people who wished the ship to go ashore so that they might remain at otaheite it may however have chafed in the natural course of affairs and now the bounty having taken on board over a thousand of the breadfruit plants besides other shrubs and fruits set sail falling in soon after with many canoes whose owners and passengers sold them hogs fowls and yams in quantities some of the sailing canoes would carry ninety persons bligh was congratulating himself on his ship being in good condition his plans in perfect order and all his men and officers in good health on leaving deck on the evening of april twenty seventh he had given directions as to the course and watches 
just before sunrise on the twenty eighth while he was yet asleep mr christian officer of the watch with three of the men came into his cabin and seizing him tied his hands behind his back threatening him with instant death if he spoke or made the least noise i called however says bligh as loud as i could in hopes of assistance but they had already secured the officers who were not of their party by placing sentinels at their doors there were three men at my cabin door besides the four within christian had only a cutlass in his hand the others had muskets and bayonets i was hauled out of bed and forced on deck in my shirt suffering great pain from the tightness with which they had tied my hands the master and master's mate the gunner and the gardener were confined below and the forecastle hatch was guarded by sentinels the boatsman who ordered to hoist the launch out with a threat that he had better do it instantly and two of the midshipmen and others were ordered into it bligh was simply told hold your tongue sir or you are dead this instant when he remonstrated i continued says he my endeavours to turn the tide of affairs when christian changed the cutlass which he had in his hand for a bayonet that was brought to him and holding me with a strong grip by the cord that tied my hands he threatened with many oaths to kill me immediately if i would not be quiet the villains round me had their pieces cocked and bayonets fixed the boatsmen and seamen who were to be turned adrift with bligh were allowed to collect twine canvas lines sails cordage and an eight-and-twenty-gallon cask of water the clerk secured one hundred and fifty pounds of bread with a small quantity of rum and wine also a quadrant and compass but he was forbidden to touch the maps observations or any of the surveys or drawings he did however secure the journals and captain's commission the mutineers having forced those of the seamen whom they meant to get rid of into the boat christian directed a dram to be served to each of his own crew isaac martin one of the guard over bligh had an inclination to serve him and fed him with some fruit his lips being quite parched this kindness was observed and martin was ordered away the same man with three others desired to go with the captain but this was refused they begged him to remember that they had no hand in the transaction i asked for arms says bligh but they laughed at me and said i was well acquainted with the people among whom i was going and therefore did not want them four cutlasses however were thrown into the boat after we were veered astern the officers and men being in the boat they only waited for me of which the master-at-arms informed christian who then said come captain bligh your officers and men are now in the boat and you must go with them if you attempt to make the least resistance you will instantly be put to death and without further ceremony with a tribe of armed ruffians about me i was forced over the side when they untied my hands a few pieces of pork were thrown to them and after undergoing a great deal of ridicule and having been kept for some time to make sport for these unfeeling wretches they were at length cast adrift in the open sea 
Bligh heard shouts of Huzzah for Otaheite among the mutineers for some considerable time after they had parted from the vessel. In the boat, well weighed down to the water's edge, were nineteen persons, including the commander, master, acting surgeon, botanist, gunner, boatswain, carpenter, and two midshipmen. On the ship were twenty-five persons, mostly able seamen, but three midshipmen were among the number, two of whom had no choice in the matter, being detained against their will. Lieutenant Bligh, although a good seaman, was a tyrannical man, and had made himself especially odious on board by reason of his severity, and especially in regard to the issuing of provisions. He had had many disputes with Christian in particular, when his language was of the coarsest order. Still, the desire to remain among the Otaheitians, or, at all events, among these enticing islands, seems to have been the main cause of the mutiny. It was shown afterwards that Christian had only the night before determined to make his escape on a kind of small raft that he had informed four of his companions, and that they had supplied him with part of a roast pig, some nails, beads, and other trading articles, and that he abandoned the idea because, when he came on deck to his watch at four a.m., he found an opportunity which he had not expected. He saw Mr. Hayward, the mate of his watch, fall asleep, and the other midshipmen did not put in an appearance at all. He suddenly conceived the idea of the plot, which he disclosed to seven of the men, three of whom had tasted the cat and were unfavorable to Bly. They went to the armorer and secured the keys of his chest, under the pretense of wanting a musket to fire at a shark, then alongside. Christian then proceeded to secure Lieutenant Bly, the master, gunner, and botanist. He stated that he had been much annoyed at the frequent abusive and insulting language of his commanding officer. Waking out of a short half-hour's disturbed sleep, to take the command of the deck, finding the mates of the watch asleep, the opportunity tempting, and the ship completely in his power. With a momentary impulse, he darted down the fore hatchway, got possession of the arm-chest, and made the hazardous experiment of arming such of the men as he deemed he could trust. It is said that he intended to send away his captain in a small, wretched boat, worm-eaten and decayed, but the remonstrances of a few of the better-hearted induced him to substitute the cutter. And now to follow the fortunes of Lieutenant Bly and his companions. Their first consideration was to examine their resources. There were sixteen pieces of pork, weighing two pounds each, the bread and water as before mentioned, six quarts of rum, and six bottles of wine. Being near the island of Tofoa, they resolved to seek a supply of breadfruit and water, so as to preserve their other stock and they did obtain a small quantity of the former, but little water. The natives, seeing their defenceless condition, meditated their destruction, and speedily crowded the beach, knocking stones together, the preparatory signal for an attack. With some difficulty the seamen succeeded in getting their things together, and got all the men except John Norton, one of the quartermasters, into the boat, the surf running high. 
the poor man was literally stoned to death within their sight. They pushed out to sea in all haste, and were followed by volleys of big stones, some of the canoes pursuing them. Their only expedient left to gain time was to throw overboard some of their clothing, which fortunately induced the natives to stop and pick them up. Night coming on, the canoes returned to the shore. Their nearest place, where they could expect relief, was Timor, a distance of full 1,200 leagues, and the men agreed to be put on an allowance, which on calculation was found not to exceed one ounce of bread per diem and a gill of water. Recommending them, therefore, in the most solemn manner, not to depart from their promises, we bore away, says Bly, across a sea where the navigation is but little known, in a small boat, twenty-three feet long, from stem to stern, deeply laden with eighteen men. It was about eight at night on the second of May, when we bore away under a reefed lug foresail, and having divided the people into watches, and got the boat into a little order, we returned thanks to God for our miraculous preservation, and in full confidence of his gracious support, I found my mind more at ease than it had been for some time past. Next morning the sun rose fiery and red, a sure indication of a gale, and by eight o'clock it blew a violent storm, the waves running so high that their sail was becalmed when between the seas. They lightened the boat by throwing overboard all superfluous articles and removing the tools, put the bread on which their very existence depended in the chest. Miserably wet and cold as were all, Bly administered a teaspoonful of rum to each at dinner-time. The sea still rose, and the fatigue of bailing became very great. Next morning, at daylight, the men's limbs were benumbed, and another spoonful of spirit was administered. Whatever might be said of Bly's previous conduct, there is no doubt that at this juncture he exerted himself wonderfully, and very judiciously to save the lives of all. Their dinner this day consisted of five small coconuts. On the night of the fourth the gale abated, and they examined the bread, much of which was found to be damaged and rotten, but it was still preserved for use. On the sixth they hooked a fish. But, says the commander, we were miserably disappointed by its being lost in trying to get it into the boat. They were terribly cramped for want of room on board, although Bly did for the best by putting them watch and watch so that half of them at a time could lie at the bottom of the boat. On the seventh they passed close to some rocky isles, from which two large sailing canoes came out and pursued hotly, but gave over the chase in the afternoon. This day heavy rain fell, when everybody set to work to catch some, with such success that they not merely quenched their thirst but increased their stock to thirty-five gallons as a corresponding disadvantage they got wet through on the eighth the allowance issued was an ounce and a half of pork a teaspoonful of rum half a pint of coconut milk and an ounce of bread bly constructed a pair of scales of two coconut shells using pistol balls for weights 
The next nine days brought bad weather and much rain, the sea breaking over the boat so much that two men were kept constantly bailing, and it was necessary to keep the boat before the waves to prevent her filling. When day broke, it showed a miserable set of beings, full of wants, aches, and pains, and nothing to relieve them. They found some comfort by wringing their clothes in seawater, by which means they found a certain limited amount of warmth. But though all were shivering with cold and wet, the commander was obliged to tell them that the rum ration, one teaspoonful, must for the present be discontinued, as it was running low. During the whole of the afternoon of the 21st, says Bly, we were so covered with rain and salt water that we could scarcely see. We suffered extreme cold, and every one dreaded the approach of night. Sleep, though we longed for it, afforded no comfort. For my own part, I almost lived without it. The misery we suffered this night exceeded the preceding. The sea flew over us with great force, and kept us bailing with horror and anxiety. At dawn of day, I found every one in a most distressed condition, and I began to fear that another such night would put an end to the lives of several who seemed no longer able to support their sufferings. I served an allowance of two teaspoonfuls of rum, after drinking which, and having wrung our clothes and taken our breakfast of bread and water, we became a little refreshed. On the twenty-fourth, for the first time in fifteen days, they experienced the warmth of the sun and dried their now threadbare garments. On the twenty-fifth, at midday, some noddies flew so near the boat that one was caught by hand. This bird, about the size of a small pigeon, was divided into eighteen portions and allotted by the method known as Who Shall Have This? in which one person, who turns his back to the caterer, is asked the question, as each piece is indicated. The system gives every one the chance of securing the best share. Bly used to speak of the amusement it gave the poor half-starved people when the beak and claws fell to his lot. That, on the following day, two boobies, which are about as large as ducks, were also caught. The sun came out so powerfully that several of the people were seized with faintness. But the capture of two more boobies revived their spirits, and as from the birds and other signs, Mr. Bly had no doubt they were near land. The feelings of all became more animated. On the morning of the 28th, the barrier reef of what was then known as the eastern coast of New Holland, now Australia, appeared, with the surf and breakers outside, and smooth water within. The difficulty was to find a passage, but at last a fine opening was discovered, and through this the boat passed rapidly with a strong stream, and came immediately into smooth water. Their past hardships seemed all at once forgotten. The coast appeared, and in the evening they landed on the sandy point of an island, where they soon found that the rocks were covered with oysters, and that plenty of fresh water was attainable. By help of a small sunglass a fire was made, and soon a stew of oysters, pork, and bread was concocted, which gladdened their hearts, each receiving a full pint. The twenty-ninth of May 
being the anniversary of the restoration of Charles II, the spot was not inappropriately named Restoration Island. Bly soon noted that alteration for the better in the looks of his men, which proved the value of oysters, stewed, as they sometimes were, with fresh green palm tops. Strange to say, that the mutinous spirit, which had been satisfactorily absent before, broke out in one or two of the men, and Bly had, in one instance, to seize a catlas and order the man to defend himself. The threatened outbreak ended quietly. But although the worst of their voyage was over, their troubles in other ways were serious. While among the islands off the coast of Australia, several of them were seriously affected with weakness, dizziness, and violent pains in their bowels. Infinitesimal quantities of wine were administered, to their great benefit. A party was sent out on one of the islands to catch birds, and they returned with a dozen noddies, these and a few clams were all they obtained. On the 3rd of June they left Cape York, and once more launched their little boat on the open ocean. On the 5th a booby was caught by the hand, the blood of which was divided among three of the men, who were weakest, and the bird kept for next day's dinner. The following day the sea ran high, and kept breaking over the boat. Mr. Ledward, the surgeon, and Le Bourg, an old hearty sailor, appeared to be breaking up fast, and no other assistance could be given them than a teaspoonful or two of wine. On the morning of the tenth, there was a visible alteration for the worse in many of the people. Their countenances were ghastly and hollow, their limbs swollen, and all extremely debilitated, some seeming to have lost their reason. But next day Bly was able to announce that they had passed the meridian of Timor, and the following morning land was sighted, with expressions of universal joy and satisfaction. Forty-one days had they been on the ocean in their miserable boat, and by the log they had run 3,618 nautical miles. On the 14th they arrived at Coupin Bay, where they were received with all kinds of hospitality. The party on landing presented the appearance of spectres. Their bodies, skin and bones, and covered with sores, their clothing in rags. But the strain had been too much for several of them. The botanists died at Coupang, three of the men at Batavia, and one on the passage home. The doctor was left behind, and not afterwards heard of. Bly arrived in England on March the 14th, and received much sympathy. He was immediately promoted, and afterwards successfully carried the breadfruit tree to the West Indies. Meantime, the government naturally proposed to bring the mutineers to trial, whatever it might cost. End of chapter 14, part 1